No matter where your business is in Canada, connectivity shouldn't be a concern. Whether your business is rural, remote, or urban, reliable, scalable internet is available to you and your business. Explore Business is expanding our network. With our extensive fiber, fixed wireless, and satellite networks, we're able to bring you the connectivity your business deserves, with the ability to grow right where you are. With investments in fiber and 5G technology, Explore Business is your new choice for business internet. Get connected with Explore Business today. Are you ready to clear a new path? Welcome to Clearing a New Path podcast, a space for the underrepresented voices in rural Canada. I'm your host, Shauna Ray. Each episode, we'll speak authentic truth because it's the truth that connects us. We'll examine issues, solutions, and hope outside of the city limits. Clearing a New Path podcast is an invitation to listen and learn along with me on the road to building a more united, feminist, anti-racist rural Canada, one rooted in diversity and driven by reconciliation. Let's learn together, clearing a new path. to admit, I have a fascination with Canadian history and more specifically, rural Canadian history. I have a keen interest in what life was like in rural Canada many years ago, but I have a real passion for uncovering the voices that are missing from rural Canadian history. Consulting the Oracle or Google one day to dig up some rural Canadian history, I came across the Rural Diary Archive and its founder and director, Catherine Wilson. Catherine is the author of Being Neighbors, Cooperative Work and Rural Culture from 1830 to 1960. Throughout history, farm families have shared work and equipment with their neighbors to complete labor-intensive, time-sensitive, and time-consuming tasks. They benefited materially and socially from these voluntary, flexible, loosely structured networks of reciprocal assistance, making neighborliness a vital but overlooked aspect of agricultural change. Being neighbors takes us into the heart of the neighborhood, the set of people near and surrounding the family through an examination of work bees in rural southern Ontario from 1830 to 1960. The bee was a special event where people gathered to work on a neighbor's farm, like bees in a hive, for a wide variety of purposes, including barn raising, logging, threshing, quilting, turkey plucking, and apple paring. Drawing on the diaries of over 100 men and women, Catherine Wilson takes readers into families' daily lives. The intricacies of their labor exchange and their workdays, feasts, and hospitality. 
Catherine's interest in history began while growing up in Grenville County in a rural area. To celebrate 1967, her parents built a log cabin in their basement. Inspired by the family heirlooms displayed there, she's been fascinated with the history of daily life ever since. She teaches Canadian history, social history, and rural history to undergraduates and graduates at the University of Guelph. She is the Rettel Meyer Professor of Rural History, coordinator of the speaker series, The Rural History Roundtable, founder and director of the Rural Diary Archive website, and a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada. Being Neighbors is Catherine's third book. Catherine, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I'm super excited. I was looking for rural history, I think, Googling it online, and and that's how I came across uh, your rural diaries and and found out about all of the work that you've been doing, especially the books that you've authored. And the first thing I want to ask is where and how did your interest in rural history begin? My interest in rural history began actually when I was a little girl. My mom and dad were very enthusiastic about the centennial year. Uh, 1967, and uh, they visited Upper Canada Village and came home with the brainstorm that they would like to create a log cabin in the basement of our modern bungalow. And so they built this log cabin in the basement, and the relatives started unloading their attics, and we soon had all sorts of wonderful artifacts from the distant past in our basement. So you could open the log cabin door and literally walk into the past. And things like great long braids of hair that had been cut off in the 1920s when ancestors bobbed their hair and uh, photograph albums and all sorts of things really sparked my imagination. And so when I decided to go to university, I wanted to study history and I wanted to learn more about my ancestors and the lives they'd lived, not them specifically, but what life was like during their era. And I was a little bit disappointed when I got to university and it was all about big political events and men and urban centers. And there didn't really seem to be much about rural life at all. It was very underrepresented. So every chance I had to write an essay, I would select a rural topic and develop it. And then when I went to grad school, I was able to, you know, pursue my passions. And that then got me into rural history. And that has been my career ever since. What challenges did you find or bump up against during those times where, like you said, urban history seems to be where our attention goes, and specifically to white men? Mm -hmm. And how did you overcome, you know, naysayers and people who really weren't that interested? That was a challenge, Shauna. It really was. I remember when I was about to uh, to embark on a study of a rural community and my thesis advisor asked me, you know, why didn't I do something that was more relevant? Why would I study something dead and dying? I think the biggest challenge has been to break down that stereotype that uh, rural areas are backward 
behind urban things. I have tried hard to show that rural life, rural people are not urbanites in overalls, that uh, we have our own history, our own trajectory, and that, uh, you know, definitely we intersect with urban life in various ways. But it's a different kind of place. It has its own sets of challenges. And it's worthy of studying because of that. What changes have you seen? Your career has spanned a number of years, and I'm sure that you've seen some monumental changes. What ones stick out for you? Generally, I would say, you know, the internet has made such a big difference in computers. When I started out as an historian, I had a little standard typewriter and and used erasable paper. Now we all have uh, PCs, laptops, and so many sources are now available online. And I think that's great. Catherine, can you tell us about some of the content that you have in the book? Perhaps maybe tell us about some of the chapters? Oh, I'd love to do that, Shauna. Um, The first chapter is um, all about the different kinds of bees. And some of them are pretty strange, like a house moving bee where they move the entire house down the road or a snaking bee where they all go out and and kill rattlesnakes. Um, And um, I explain why people hold these bees. Uh, Another chapter is on quilting bees. So if any of your listeners are avid quilters, they'll enjoy that. Uh, Then I have a chapter on the barn raisings. And you know, as you drive through the countryside today and you see those large timber frame barns, hardly any of them would have gone up without a barn raising bee where anywhere from 100 to 200 people would show up to lift the big timbers, timber bents into place. And uh, then there's a chapter on threshing bees. Uh, So folks who uh, enjoy the steam shows will probably enjoy that chapter. Then I have a chapter on the food. At these barn raising bees, for example, where a woman, a hostess, had to feed up to 200 people. It's really interesting to look at the quantity cooking that they did and how just what you serve changed over time. And um, then I leave the happy atmosphere of dinner and dancing and go to Bees Gone Wrong, where accidents occurred, where someone got pulled into the jaws of the cutting machine of the thresher, or someone fell from the top beam of the barn. And um, these were also occasions, public occasions, when issues could come to a head. And I've actually come across 17 murders that occurred at bees. So there's a chapter on that. And finally, a chapter on why they decline. I can't even imagine what it would be like to serve meals and full meals to 200 people, where they would sit, how you would have utensils, and also... Where would everyone sleep? Because I can't imagine it was 200 people in close vicinity. There would be people that would have to travel from far away. So would they sleep in their wagon? Would they come by wagon? I'm super curious about all of those things. Just preparing for the feast. Women would borrow dishes from other women and they would um, prepare for days in advance, uh, you know, set aside some extra Uh, cans of uh, peaches that they would have canned during the summer months and uh, maybe set aside a particular sheep or pig to be slaughtered before the event. And um, then they usually fed them outside 
uh, with makeshift tables under the trees where it was cool and there was a good breeze. The murders. Yeah. These events were pretty exciting and people gathered around. And sometimes if, if you had a neighbor that you didn't like, because it wasn't all warm and fuzzy, these relationships, they helped each other. They had to uh, help people back in return. And people are people and personality with their own personalities. So sometimes things, issues would come to a head between, say, two men who didn't like each other, and they had their reputations to defend, and so there would be a fight breakout. And the, it's rather interesting because often these fights would go on for hours, and uh, the crowd would just sort of let the men fight it out quietly, knowing that eventually they'd tire, and then they could resume work. It was like the fighting was a kind of release from the tensions that had been building up in the community. They always had to have like an eye to the fact that they would need to rely on each other again in the future for work. Um, but sometimes it did get out of hand and um, there would be an accidental death occur in a, an argument. I can visualize all of that in my mind. What a great television series that would be. The tensions between families. We're all human beings, right? That, that, that has not changed through the ages. They didn't generally have pistols and rifles and such. They would just take whatever was at hand as their weapon. So it might be a pitchfork or a saw they'd been using to cut wood. Or on, in one case, uh, even one of the hostesses got involved with a broken cup and used that as a weapon. But I, I just want to ensure, Shauna, that your audience know that the vast majority of these bees, and there were thousands of them, were conducted in a peaceful manner and work was accomplished that pleased the host. It was only in the occasional situation that accidents or violence occurred. That makes sense, that mostly it was peaceful. You don't want to ask too many times for everyone to show up. And also, you don't always want to be the giver, the person that's always going. So so how did they work that out? Oh, that's such an excellent question. And you know, Shauna, that goes right to the very heart of the matter. Um, the The rule, the unwritten rule was if people came and helped you, then you had to help them in return. But it might be inconvenient, and that was the snag that everybody had to overcome. And they did that in a variety of ways. Often the household head, the farmer, would send a son. And uh, often the most, the, the families that are most involved in what I would call a bee network um, have grown sons that they send to these events so that the farm head could attend to business in town and his farm management duties while the sons went to, eat to neighboring farms to work. They also didn't expect to be uh, repaid immediately. So the, the labor debt, because this is basically a labor exchange system, the labor debt could linger for years and it could be repaid in different ways. So you didn't have to, for example, if you came to my logging bee, I didn't have to go to your logging bee, but I might repay you in some other way uh, months in a, months ahead. I might, um, your, your two daughters might come to my wife's quilting. Um, so, you know, there, there were different ways of making the repayment. So it was flexible and lingering. And they often thought that it was pretty good to have some debts lingering because it meant that you were still connected. And if you 
encountered a calamity like your barn burned or you broke your leg right in harvest time, you could call in what was owing to you. You could call in people to help you. I like that. I, I think about people must have held on to that because often we wait for the other shoe to drop, meaning when things are going well, we know eventually, you know, something something will go wrong. It, it is you know, human, it's, it's a life. And, and so I can see that, that folks may have perhaps held on to that favor, if you will, until something dire happened to them. Is there anything else that, that really you found fascinating? I think that um, some of the expectations and behaviors were interesting. For example, when it came to uh, women and food, it was expected that they would be provide food generously. You know, the worst fear of any farm woman was to run out of food and look bad at these events. And so they wanted to be generous, but it was understood throughout the community that you didn't want to show off or be too so generous, so generous that you lifted the bar too high for others um, who would come after you. And so you had to sort of like walk that middle ground of of doing your very best because everybody knows what people can afford in a small community, doing your very best, but not overstepping what the neighborhood standard was. And when women might overstep the standard and be uppity or or when they were perhaps a bit on the stingy side, then they were brought into line with jokes and stories that um, didn't necessarily pinpoint them directly and criticized them, but but made it clear to all the listeners what was expected in the community. So, for example, there was a story, and I don't know whether it was ever really all that true or not, of a family moving in from Toronto to farm, and they held a bee, and they served bologna instead of beef, which was the standard at that particular moment in time, and uh, nobody apparently went to their bees again. so, you know, whether that true, the story was true or not, it was um, sending a message. So there was a level of judgment there. And, and it was important to temper success or appearance of success so that you weren't too good and you weren't too bad. You had to fall somewhere in the middle so that you could be accepted. You've got it. You didn't want to create resentment because these people were your neighbors and you were relying on them and you needed to be able to work together in the future. Absolutely fascinating. You have actually been working on a project to preserve some rural stories in Ontario. Yes, the Rural Diary Archive is a crowdsourcing project of mine where we have over 200 diarists and their writing. And uh, it's free for people to go in and read the diaries or transcribe them uh, and search them. And it makes these underused but very rich sources available to everybody and I just love them I feel like I'm in people's kitchens and walking through their barnyards in the past they're they're such they're so immediate and and uh, so rich in what they have to reveal 
You have become an author a few times over. Can you talk about your previous books? The first book I wrote was a case study of 100 families who migrated from Ireland and settled on Amherst Island, which is near Kingston, Ontario. And so I studied those those very families in their old country as they crossed the ocean and then as they established themselves on Amherst Island. I was able to uh, analyze, you know, what kinds of families came and I was able to show how they they wanted to replicate in many ways the life they had in Ireland. So they had been uh, shipbuilders, sailors and farmers in Ireland and they chose an island to live on where they could, you know, continue the same sort of skills. And they actually, when they got here, rented from an absentee Irish landlord. I really enjoyed that project and I lived in both places and I had artists, contemporary artists, who had depicted the landscapes and the people during the time period I was studying. People enjoyed it and a few people said, oh yeah, but you know, that was an island. Things are different on the island. And that may be true to some extent, but I thought tenancy was much more widespread. And so that brought me to my second book, which is entitled Tenants in Time, where I study farm tenancy in Ontario. And Shauna, this is a story that historians hadn't wanted to tell. We like to think of Canada and Ontario in this case as being a place where immigrants could arrive and very quickly own land of their own. And uh, this is, of course, set against a background of landlord oppression in the old country. But what I found in digging and really digging through the archives and finding eventually some underused census sources, that a third to a half of the population in the mid-19th century rented their land, farmed and rented land rather than owned it. And this wasn't because they were oppressed. This was because it was a good deal and it made a great deal of sense to check out a place and practice farming uh, before investing what little money you had in purchasing property. And many of these people were used tenancy as a kind of ladder to ownership. The current book, the one that's just come out, Being Neighbors, it has the best story of all, I always think. My idea for that book began back in uh, the 1990s when my mother gave me my great-great-grandmother's diary. And I started reading it and I got really hooked. I just thought it was so fascinating. I'd never been so close to the rural past as I was going through her daily entries and feeling her changing mood and and getting a sense of what everybody in the household was doing each day. And I noticed there was a lot of reference to bees and great-great-grandma Lucy, they had threshing bees, barn-raising bees, manuring bees, and a variety of other things, quilting bees, of course. So I decided to write an article about that. And the article got published. And I think the genealogical network got a hold of it somehow. And before too long, I was receiving emails from distant relatives who I did not know from Australia and New England and California saying they had other diaries belonging to Lucy. 
And that was very exciting. I also uh, got a lot of positive feedback from the article I wrote. It got reprinted six times in other publications. And I thought, okay, people like this, and I'm loving the topic, so I'm going to write a book on it. And hence the book. What did you find the most surprising? I think the first thing that really strikes you is how much back and forth there is. Like we often think of these early settlers as isolated, but there hardly a day goes by that somebody's not dropping by or they're not traveling to town or going to a neighbor's property. So that really surprised me. And um, also, you know, there was so much that they had to manage on their own that we don't have to do today. Um, you know, we can just quickly go to the grocery store and pick up things where a very large portion of their lives was spent getting food, growing it, harvesting it, processing it, and other things in life too. Like they had to dig the grave and lay out the dead and funeral parlors look after that now. And if your barn burned, there was no insurance for it. You had to hope that your neighbors would rally around and help you rebuild. Um, so that was surprising too. And I really appreciate the lives that they live and the conveniences and services and institutions that we have today. Is it an emotional process to go through to, to read some of the challenging times and, and somber times that folks went through? Yes. And that's, that's such a great question because, yes, it's, it's rather spiritual and it's definitely emotional. I have uh, read one gentleman's diary that went for years and years and years, and I came to feel quite attached to him so that when, when his handwriting starts to get extremely shaky and it's clear that he suffered a stroke, you're feeling all choked up. And another diary that I recently received was written during the Spanish flu. And the author of it, she's writing about the community and how the schools are closed. And now that they can't go to church because of the flu. And then all of a sudden, in a child's handwriting, it's noted that mother passed away from the epidemic. And on the very next day, so did dad. And this was their young daughter just finishing off the diary. Oh, that hits me even hearing you speak about it. Mm -hmm. Really emotional uh, times. One thing that, that you and I have talked about before this podcast conversation is something that always strikes me about history, especially rural history and Canadian history. We know in recent times, people are becoming more aware that there's parts of history missing, specifically our Indigenous people who were here first, but also people that couldn't write, people that couldn't read, people that didn't have privilege. It is the diaries of the folks that were privileged enough to perhaps have some education or teach themselves to read and write. I tend to think that there's chunks of history that we're missing out on, the people that worked the fields, the people that didn't have a lot of money, didn't have a homestead, weren't able to rent a farm. I often think about that. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, I think you're right. There are still lots that we will 
We'll never know. Those voices are very hard to reach. And when we do get glimpses of their lives, it's usually through people who are literate. It's not their own voice. Um, I have been somewhat surprised about the kind of people who are keeping the diaries, though. They're educated enough to write, but, um, you know, the punctuation isn't there. Um, The spelling can be very, very, shall we say, imaginative. And uh, there is the occasional farm laborer or domestic servant who keeps a diary. So they're not all highly literate. I feel that that we've got a fairly good range represented. But of course, those people who couldn't write at all are not keeping diaries. When you say servant, was that typically a black servant? These were domestic servants. They would usually be young women in the community. Uh, Another farmer's daughter who was working for a while with a different farmer. Usually when the farmer's wife was expecting a baby, they'd call in a domestic servant to help prepare the meals and look after the other children. How do we continue to preserve those voices into the future? I think that the Rural Diary Archive is one method of preserving. These diaries have been in people's attics and uh, tucked away in various archives. When you first open them up, they're uh, difficult to read because of the handwriting The way they present themselves on paper is often uh, like a stream of consciousness, not proper sentences. And also they sometimes first appear boring because it's all, you know, weather. It's always weather first and then they get into the activities of the day. And what the Rural Diary Archive does is we have volunteers who are transcribing these. And so it makes it much easier for people to read them and to search them and use them in their research And I I think that this is uh, an important way of preserving them for the future and also inspiring uh, new research. Do you have another book in mind? Are you working on something in the future? Not just at the moment. I'm uh, going to enjoy this book and then think about the next one. I want to ask one final question. What do you find the most gratifying about it? I do a lot of public talks to community groups. And so often afterwards, people come up to me and the topic has really touched them. They remember their parents going to threshing bees or they belong to a, to a quilting circle. They want to share their memories. And I think that uh, my work to some degree shows them that their past is important. What if people are sitting on, and and by sitting on, I mean they have in their possession uh, a diary or some piece of um, like an artifact that could be utilized by your department? Uh, What should they do? Um, Well, if it's a diary, um, certainly contact me. My contact information is on the Rural Diary Archive, or you can Google me at the University of Guelph Department of History. If it's an artifact, I'd suggest suggest that uh, they contact their local museum. And if it's some other kind of historical document, perhaps a collection of letters or account books, um, then they might consider contacting the Archival and Special Collections at the University of Guelph. 
they have a rural heritage collection there. That's a wonderful collection. Thank you so much, Catherine. We have been talking about a new project, and and I'm not going to reveal what that is quite yet, but I'm super excited to be working with you. And um, congratulations on this newest book. You're a fascinating person to speak with, and, and I just thank you for your work. Thank you. Um, it's it's been a pleasure talking with you, Shauna. And uh, I guess it's time we just all got out there and we're good neighbors, right? <laughs> exactly. Thank you for that. Want to keep the conversation going? Subscribe to the Clearing a New Path newsletter. Drop me an email, follow the podcast on social media, and or you can leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Clearing a New Path podcast artwork is supported by the graphic design of Katie Wilhelm, and the music branding is by The Hankering Studio. The podcast is produced by Radar Media in Thames Centre, Ontario. It is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga or neutral peoples who once used this land as their traditional beaver hunting grounds. The First Nations communities closest to the studio are... Chippewa of the Thames First Nation, Oneida Nation of the Thames, Muncie, Delaware First Nation, and the Chippewas of Kettle and Stony Point. I will speak to many more people across Turtle Island this season, and as a settler here, I'm committed to deepening understanding of colonialism, the TRC's calls to action, and to reframing responsibilities to land and community. I am grateful to Mother Earth and Creator for the opportunity for love and connection and to the spirits of the elders and the medicine people who still walk the earth. Until next time, 